This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, July 3rd, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. We're smack dab between the 150th Canada Day and the 241st Independence Day in the United States. But once upon a time, there was a secret effort between secretive armed cabals on both sides of the then-fuzzy U.S.-Canada border, and you've probably never heard of it. What's more, it's an interesting object lesson in just what kind of libertarian you are. Anthony Comegna of Libertarianism.org explains. This is an interesting story because it's it's about something that didn't happen, right? Sort of, yeah. But it's uh, a story about an armed cabal, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, a shadowy secret society, and governments trying to act when this group, this shadowy group is ready and, and ready to act. Yes. So where, do, where, do, where ought we to begin here? Well, OK. So this is a really strange story. Uh, but this uh, – we're going to talk about a, uh, an example of uh, a small conflict on the periphery of the British Empire uh, that really didn't end up going anywhere, didn't uh, have terribly significant results. But it could have. Uh, George Washington was uh, really just engaged in tiny, tiny little minor uh, skirmishes in Pennsylvania uh, out in the middle of nowhere and it became the Seven Years' War and worldwide conflict. Um, in 1837, there was a series of two uh, Canadian rebellions against British rule. Now, for a long time, the sort of radical end of Canadian politics had looked toward Jacksonian America as inspiration against their conflict with uh, British imperialism in Canada. British Canada was ruled by what was called the Family Compact Regime. This was basically a collection of high-placed landowners, wealthy individuals in Canada who monopolized the best land purchases, the best offices uh, in the government and in the militia service and things like that for themselves, their families, their friends, their connections. Um, so it was a very uh, sort of uh, regressive aristocratic situation in Canada where there was tons and tons of open available land, very good land, burgeoning economy. But there was this uh, very old, outdated, feudal, uh, monopolistic regime sort of uh, crushing economic development and keeping small uh, peasants and, and poor people down. So. There were a series of Republican rebellions among the native Canadians um, in Upper and Lower Canada in 1837 to about 1839. And the Americans decided to join in because the Canadians had been uh, borrowing and really relying on their ideas, their newspapers for a long, long time. And the Americans had been eyeing Canada as their next annexation of territory for an awfully long time since the revolution, um, since before the revolution. and. Um, once again, a lot of Americans thought, well, this is now our chance to take advantage of the rebellions in Canada, to join our Republican values and prosperity with their new Republican values and perhaps independence and welcome a series of sister republics into the uh, expanding American empire. Uh, of course, they probably wouldn't have used the word empire. Um, but 
So we have what one historian called a vast secret revolutionary society called the Patriot Hunters. And there were actually five of these, at least five of these secret societies. Um, big umbrella organizations of American so-called filibusters, which basically means um, pirates who <laughs> will invade uh, other, other territories and try to add territory to their country uh, through private action, right? Non, this is non-state sanctioned uh, military activity. So we have these American filibusters and um, the national administration is very nervous about this state of affairs because they don't want anything to do with the Canadian rebellions. They don't want anything to do with these filibusters causing trouble on the border. Uh, Van Buren has absolutely no interest in a war with Great Britain over something like this. Um, he has no interest in new territory anyways. He already denied Texas because he thought that the political system couldn't handle the addition of territory. It would agitate sectional issues and have a breakdown of comedy. So he, he wanted to avoid new territory and conflict at any cost pretty much. Um, and the, <laughs> the filibusters didn't wait for the administration. They didn't wait for any kind of support. They didn't wait for any kind of denunciation either. They just went for it. So we have the more or less uh, uh, bottom-up formation uh, of these secret societies, the Brother Hunters, the Frere Chasseur, the Sons of Liberty, um, other groups that uh, all join together one way or another. They communicate together. They do militia drills, basically a bunch of drunk young men in the woods in the middle of the night shooting at clay pigeons and uh, electing each other to you know, be militia officers, and they're having a good old time of it, uh, playing at revolutionaries, right? And um, <laughs> so it causes it, it causes uh, some conflict with the administration, though. Um, but uh, <laughs> but it doesn't provoke the United States to war with Great Britain. It doesn't provoke the U.S. to get involved with with uh, the Canadian rebellions. Um, and it's against this backdrop of a 30 to 40, 50 year long process of staking out the American-Canadian border. So all the way back to the Treaty of Paris, it was, it was questionable where exactly the border between the two countries lie. But what, well, how was that viewed? The fact that the border was this sort of fuzzy area that was between Canada and the United States? Well, for most people, it didn't matter because they didn't live there and the, the uh, length of the border was unpopulated for the most part anyways, at least in the early days, say 1780s and 90s. Uh, there were very few people out there anyhow. Even in, in a place like Maine, the actual border territory was very, very wild and rugged and unpopulated. But by the 1830s, uh, that territory is being exploited more and more and especially lumbermen in Maine come into conflict with each other. So. The, this part of the rebellion and the, the filibustering is called the Aroostook War. And uh, it doesn't really come to much. Van Buren sends Winfield Scott up to the border to sort of parade around on his horse with some military men at his side and, and uh, quell the uh, tensions down to a peaceful state. And he's successful. And while he's up there, he gains some information about the Patriots and all these other groups and their activities and stuff. Now, the Patriots, they... they printed their own paper currency to fund operations. They set up a central bank to distribute their currencies. They set up their own newspapers. They, <laughs> they published uh, invitations and communications in cipher. Um, it, was, it was a sort of big operation 
uh, a re real, true, vast, secret, revolutionary society. Um, but when they decided to invade Canada, it really came to naught. Um, and again, you know, there's this, this painstaking process of sorting out the border because, yeah, most people for a long time didn't really uh, have, have any impact with the Canadians or otherwise. There weren't people out there on the border. But more and more they're crowding together and the Americans are thinking, you know, this is a perfect place to expand. Um, so the, the British sort of recognize that this is going to be a problem and they decide to transport their old governor from Tasmania all the way to Canada to be the new lieutenant governor there and take, uh, take charge of things. So uh, a man named uh, Bond Head is replaced as lieutenant governor by Sir, Sir George Arthur. Okay, so, so the British sort of have a sense that this is going to be a bit of a problem uh, moving forward. And they're trying to uh, chart out the border with the U.S. It's an ongoing process of signing treaties and having uh, survey teams go out to, you know, the middle of the Great Lakes and look at these teeny little lake islands and compare them to the text of the treaty. And it takes decades to do this. And it is a very, very... A deliberate effort on the part of both governments to maintain peace on that border at all costs. Um, and the, the, the British, to make sure that that happens, they transport their uh, governor from Tasmania out to Canada. So Sir George Arthur replaces a man named Bond Head as the lieutenant governor of Canada. And uh, one historian said of George Arthur that he was a bureaucratic ogre who sent hundreds to the gallows and the notorious builder of the Port Arthur Jail, the Australian term for cruelty. And he was responsible for the extermination of the Tasmanian Aborigines. So this is the guy that they send to Canada to make sure that there is no conflict with the U.S., or at least if there is, to make sure that the Americans uh, can't just pour across the border and do as they will. Um, now, after the Canadian rebellions uh, are unsuccessful, the, the native rebellions are unsuccessful in attracting a great number of uh, supporters uh, who actively want to rebel. Uh, they do capture a few little towns for a short while, but they're pretty much evaporated by uh, the, the first British uh, militia to show up on, on the spot. Um, in the ensuing counter-revolution, if you will, um, they round up uh, Many, many, many people uh, tear people out of their houses. They go through their effects. They try to find, you know, any kind of incriminating evidence to use against people to convict them of having aided or abetted or joined in the rebellion. Um, there are 25,000 refugees, mainly Republican-minded Canadians who flee the country, including, interestingly enough, the parents of uh, Thomas Edison. So that's how they end up in the country. Um, and after this wave of sort of uh, counter-revolutionary terror in Canada uh, on the part of the conservative forces, um, the Americans decide it's their turn to go ahead and, and do the business of revolutionizing Canada. So they gather up their forces and uh, about 200 American patriots, these brother hunters, actually uh, participate in what's called the Battle of the Windmill in November 1838. Again, they're beaten. They're you know pretty sorely beaten and dispersed. And uh, most of these people who who invade Canada, there are a couple other skirmishes across the the next several months in different parts of the country. Um, 
But most of these people um, basically just run away to the woods, you know, when the, the battle is lost and they, they make their way back home across the border. Uh, but the less fortunate are uh, caught, imprisoned, and convicted of uh, having, you know, uh, participated in rebellion in Canada. And they're transported to Australia. So they're, they're loaded onto prison hulks and uh, taken across the ocean to Australia. And they are uh, put in what one prisoner, Benjamin Waite, called the Purgatory of England. Um, and they're, they're forced you know, into the prison labor regime of British Australia until they can make their escape, like Benjamin Waite and James Jemmel, um, both of whom we've covered on libertarianism.org before. Uh, and they, they go back home to tell their tale of basically betrayal by the American government, uh, that the, the democratic administration did not come to their aid. Uh, and a lot of these people who were friendly to the Canadian rebels and the patriots, um, they turn Whig. They, so they, <laughs> scorned by Martin Van Buren and his party, they turn Whig and they vote for General Harrison and John Tyler in 1840. And this battle really comes to define a lot of the local and state politics on the border for the next decade or so. And the Canada affair is referred to as something that sorts out the radicals from the conservatives and the moderates. You know, I think it's sort of a Rorschach's test, this weird little story, to tell what sort of a libertarian are you. Do you think that any kind of private activity, private militaries doing private foreign policy, is that fine? Uh, Especially when the, uh, you have private militaries who share some sort of uh, ideal yeah. across the fuzzy Canadian border trying to draw that line and trying to be as sensible as they can about how that line gets drawn. They want uh, whatever – wherever that line gets drawn, they want it to have the values that uh, they – those groups share. Yeah. The, these are radical individualists. They're radical Republican revolutionaries. They think that you know they're the next generation of George Washingtons and Thomas Jeffersons and probably not Hamiltons but you know. Um, they're the new revolutionaries and it's up to them. If not them, then who else is going to make the world more Republican? Who's going to make the world safe from monarchy, you know, if not the Republicans? So these are, again, private armies, private citizens volunteering, doing their own funding through volunteer means. You know, this is totally a market activity. To the extent that you can draw out the mindset we, we think it's probably ridiculous now. I mean to uh, – if Oklahoma and Texas wanted to redraw their border, for example, we think, well, that's, that's, that's dumb. Uh, and we don't necessarily view the idea of taking up arms and uh, working in private groups to engage in conflicts or engage or prepare for conflicts across a border without government involvement. It, it, that seems so alien. Yeah, yeah. But at the, I'd say at the time, people thought of it as simply another power of the sovereign individual that is temporarily ceded to government and these institutions whose rule we accept. And they really did accept the rule of that government too. Now, these are white males <laughs> in the north. Um, I'm, I'm sure they're not all white, but for the most part, these are white men. Um, so 
they were, for the most part, Democrats and Republicans through and through. They believed in the ideology of Jacksonian America so thoroughly, in fact, that they would take it upon themselves as sovereign individual citizens to conduct foreign policy when the government was unwilling to do so. And they would conduct foreign policy in a way that advanced a, their vision of global republicanism. To them, every person everywhere had the same sovereign rights as a citizen, as an individual. It didn't matter what your flag, what your government, what your particular regime was. Uh, you as a person, a human being, had republican rights. And uh, you, one of those rights is the right to revolution. So uh, everyone everywhere could overthrow their government at any point as an individual, if you wish, and be within, in some sense, the scope of your rights. So there's someone else here that, that figures in, uh, I guess, maybe as a peripheral figure, and that's Abram D. Smith. And we've talked about him in episodes of Classics of Liberty. He wrote this very important assertion on behalf of the rights of individuals in Wisconsin. Mm. Um, so, uh, but he was also, <laughs> as you note, elected uh, the president of the Republic of Canada yes. yeah. at one point. So who is Abram D. Smith? How does he figure into this? Yeah, the first and only president of the Republic of Canada, as I understand. It's quite a distinction. Yeah, yeah it is, I'm sure. No, he was basically, he was one of these brother hunters in Ohio. And he was a radical loco foco from New York. He had read William Leggett and other uh, libertarians of the day. And he was in a Republican expansionist. So he goes to Ohio and he's sort of doing some light Democratic Party work. He's doing local politics and uh, he decides that uh, he's going to join this Brother Hunter Society. And one night in the middle of the woods, surrounded by torchlight, He's elected by his compatriots, the president of the Republic of Canada. And it's decided that when they invade and, and the invasion is successful and British rule is repelled from Canada, he will be the at least temporary president in charge of the political life of uh, the new republic. So that was the plan. Now, we don't know exactly what happened to Smith and his engagement in Canada. We're not, we can't be certain that he either saw or is, did not see battle, um, as, as I would guess that he did not, because uh, I would think that his biographer would know about it if he did. She pieced to, managed to piece together just about all the information that's available on the guy. Um, and it doesn't seem that he did, but uh, those, it's interesting, those who did were very scarred by it because they either were terribly defeated and they came home to find that their political party and their politicians had rejected them and abandoned them in terms of policy, or they got imprisoned and uh, perhaps executed or sent to Australia. And uh, you know uh, that left a pretty sour taste in their mouth for rebellion and revolution. Um, so they ended up saying, People like James Jemmel said, you know, we should leave frontier movements alone and be an example to people. That's the best way to spread liberty. Now, somebody like Smith, though, came away. He was president of the Republic of Canada, even for a short while. Yeah, it didn't work out, but that's exciting. That must be thrilling. The idea that the people did take it upon themselves to rise up, conduct the policy that their government was refusing to conduct on the part of the rights of human beings. And he came away 
with a very sunny picture of American uh, expansionism and republicanism. And he was pro-Texas a few years later. And he called for expansion uh, even further than that throughout his later career, and he became a proponent of the Civil War as a, a means of ending slavery. And it's worth noting that he wrote this very important opinion um, asserting on behalf of the rights of the individual who otherwise would have been repatriated, I suppose, to the South as slaves. Yeah, that's what we cover on Classics of Liberty. And I'd say to everybody, really go go listen to that because it is excellent. It's fascinating. You'll probably never encounter it anywhere else. Um, so if you haven't heard that, really check it out. But it, but it, it, it presents, uh, as we discussed, we've discussed before, it presents this ideal of state authority, uh, not over federal authority, but asserting within this territory, uh, we get to decide whether or not certain people have rights and we decide they do have rights and up yours to the feds essentially. Yeah, in, in so many words, Smith's argument is that every official of the government and every citizen, every individual, every party to the government at one level or another uh, has rights and obligations within that structure. And ultimately, they all come from the sovereignty of individuals. So, you know, if you're a state official like Smith and a freed slave is, you know, figured – well, actually in this case, it was the people aiding a, a runaway slave uh, were brought before Smith's court and uh, he basically freed them saying, you know, um, that this man is made a slave by the laws of the state of Virginia or Missouri but not Wisconsin. Wisconsin recognizes him as a free man. And I have a duty to the people of Wisconsin to enforce the law as they see it. And I say that the Constitution gives no support for the Fugitive Slave Act. It's null and void in this state uh, because the, the rights of the people of Wisconsin demand that it be nullified. And so it's my duty to do that regardless of what the Supreme Court says, regardless of what the, the national government at all says. Was that broadly the attitude of these brother hunters that this, this represents sort of our thinking about uh, how the world ought to be? Well, like any good secret society, they had oaths uh, that you had to take before joining. And in their oath, they uh, had a sort of vision of global republicanism, that their, their war did not stop with the British, it did not stop with Canada, that all people everywhere, again, had certain rights as individuals that are fundamental to them that no government can properly abrogate or take away, um, and that it is, in a sense, the right or duty of every individual to take up uh, the burden of protecting themselves if need be. So if, if your government is not protecting you, if it's monopolizing powers and privileges and doling them out to the special few, you have every right to revolutionize that government and other people have every right to come into the territory and revolutionize that government. Now, I think the thorny question is, well, what if they don't want that, right? What do you do then? What if the government says no? What if the government says no? What if the other people say no? What if most of your friends and neighbors say no, right? What if your girlfriend is maybe impressed that you were elected president of the Republic of Canada or that you exchanged musket fire with the British, uh, but she doesn't want to see you transported to Australia as a result, right? And this is a, this is a wonderful, wonderful story to follow through because it's, it's got everything. It's 
secret societies. It's got violence, romance, uh, imprisonment, distance. It has everything that you want in a good drama. Peaceful private negotiation over <laughs> land rights. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. What does uh, your reaction to this story say about you as a libertarian? Are you an anything peaceful libertarian? Are you an everything peaceful libertarian? Are you a privatize everything, even the armies libertarian? Uh, who knows? Anthony Comegna is assistant editor for intellectual history at libertarianism.org. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>